Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast that is coming to you today from the QI offices in Covent Garden. I am Anna Tashinsky and I'm sitting here today with Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin and one Alex Edelman. Hi, uh, hi Alex. Thanks for coming on. It's Who is that fun. other guy we used to have? Who? The other, there was another guy. No, it's always been three person and one guest, isn't it? Oh yeah. No, no, you're right. Sorry. Alex Sorry. Bell. Alex Bell. Okay, so once again, the three of us and our guest Alex Edelman have gathered around the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with, this is going to seem suspicious because I'm never the first fact, (laughs) and yet the day I host, we're starting with my facts. And my fact is that in 1903, it was made illegal in Boston to lie down in a canoe. That was very well known. I, I know it's a subtle fact for you guys, but for us, growing up, it, the real neighborhood bad boys would get drunk late at night and take turns lying down in a canoe. <laughs> sure. So th- this is not news to Bostonians, obviously. No. It's a big deal. No, this was uh, this is turn of the 20th century, and it was because there were a series of lakes that had been created after the Charles River was dammed about 100 years earlier, and they became lovers' haunts because basically it created all these little nooks and crannies in the water where you could pop in a canoe and you suddenly didn't have a chaperone and you weren't around the grown-ups anymore so you took your girlfriend popped in a canoe and went and lay down sexually mm. in it oh. uh, in the undergrowth and people caught on to the fact this was happening and so a law was passed in the area that said you weren't allowed to act lewdly in canoes and that covered doing things like uh, hand holding in a canoe embracing and lowering your head below the you know that bit that's the top of the canoe yeah. You were called. forbidden from canoodling. Canoodling. Is that what made its way over here? I've seen them. Just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've seen people call it that. Yeah. Were you, so if you lay down in a canoe, but you were by yourself, would that still get you yeah. in trouble? Well, I don't think it would, but technically it was illegal. <laughs> yeah. And it was a $20 fine, wasn't yes. it? Yeah. But I read somewhere that that was about $500 today. Yeah. So it's was a more it? serious penalty wow. than... Uh, yeah. Is it still? Is it still in effect? Well, I didn't read that it had been withdrawn. They only arrested people for a couple of years, yeah. and I think people got pretty annoyed about it. Well, it, basically, people stopped doing it because cars became a thing. Yeah. And so you could get away from your chaperones a lot easier in a car yeah. if you were, you know. Yeah, you and know. then, did they then call that car noodling? <laughs> uh. But uh, all that the ban meant was, as it usually would, is that the kids started taking the piss out of the park rangers. And so they had phonographs in their canoes, which are basically like um, big... What are they called? Boom boxes. Oh, yeah. yeah it's like in the, you know, if you get an Audi these days and pimp it up with a massive stereo system, this is the equivalent in... Exactly. Yeah. They did that in their canoes and then blasted out like <laughs> lewd songs and love songs and stuff and snogged each other in front of the, the park rangers. So is this technically a morality law? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. People wow. thought it was immoral. The, it spread as well. So it wasn't just in Boston. I read that uh, 10 years later in Minnesota, there was a curfew and the police had motorized boats with spotlights. So they would be shining them around on the water looking for lovers. And also, in 1913, the following year, the Minneapolis Parks Board vetoed all the names. You know how these days you get um, a car license plates that yeah. are banned because they look like rude words. So there were, in 1913, there were banned canoe names. <laughs> that people tried to register and they included things like uh, the come on in kid the kiss me quick G.I. love you 
Joy Tub, Cupid's Nest, and I Would Like to Try It. <laughs> what God. a name. I Would Like to Try It. Yeah. Do you know, there? it's funny because there are in, in certain states, there's actually maritime exemptions. Like in Ohio, you can't be arrested on Sundays or the 4th of July for lesser crimes that you commit on a river. Really? What? Yes. They do not extend to cases of treason or felony. But uh, <laughs> so if you commit treason on a river in Ohio on a Sunday, you're shit out of luck. <laughs> so yeah, the less serious crimes can't be arrested uh, on a Sunday or July the 4th. Really? Yeah. That's like in uh, in Scotland. I actually, this is one of those things that we were always told because when I lived in Scotland, everyone says when you're pissed, you're steaming. And everyone said it was because um, the anti-drinking laws, uh, the prohibition laws didn't apply if you took a boat out to sea. So everyone would just get out on their steamboats. Oh, that when doesn't it, sound very true. But I haven't verified that. <laughs> everyone had their old personal steamboats. Exactly. Just get tanked up and take the steamboat out. Yeah. I wonder how, how, how lo-fi you can define something as a steamboat. You're just sitting on like a plank of wood. Like, what are you doing? You're like, my steamboat. Is the SS kiss me quickly? Wasn't Boston, was Boston quite famous for this? Because there was a phrase that was banned in Boston, which this was later on in the century. Uh, so this was from the 1920s. And the phrase banned in Boston became super famous because so much was banned. And Bostonians were really into censoring so many books for immorality. Um, and publishers used to try to get their books banned in Boston because then that was a mark of respect and, and awesomeness. that's the easiest place to get it banned, right? Yeah, mm. yeah. Wow. Is Bo- it a very moral place, Boston? Boston, yes, yes and no. So Boston had a reputation throughout its history for being a place both of debauchery and a place to sort of like somewhat atone for your debauchery. So there was like a very fragile piece that goes all the way to the end of the 1980s in an area called the Combat Zone, like a very a very um, fragile piece between like the seedier parts of Boston, which is what it was known for, mm-hmm. and the sort of like conservative side of Boston. Is it a is port? Also- it is, must be, right? It is a port. Tea. It's one of the biggest so, ports. Yeah, so you're going to have a lot of sailors coming in and that kind of thing, right? If it was landlocked, the tea party would have been very difficult to hold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The Boston Tea, yeah, we're just throwing it into a pond. <laughs> they got off actually on a technicality because it was a Sunday and it's not technically treason. Because <laughs> <laughs> they boiled the tea, it was steaming. <laughs> the Boston Tea Party was December 16th, 1773. It was a huge landmark day for civil disobedience because it does, it like literally all, I'm not kidding, all the way going back to the founding of Boston, the police elements of Boston and the troublemaking elements of Boston have been in this like weird alignment. So the Boston Tea Party, when it happened, was seen as a huge failure of that balance because people mm. really were for both those things existing but very separately. And when when the Bostonians start to revolt against the British, a lot of the loyalist elements of Boston were really upset that this fragile peace between the brothels, which they like to access themselves, and respectable <laughs> society were, were commingling. And it was a real big problem for the, like, ruling classes in Boston. Yeah, so you had the um you had the Boston massacre around the same time, didn't you? Yes, which is caused by like a snowball fight or something. Or there was like there was a real kind of problem between the two groups and then one guy threw a snowball and then it all kicked off. There were so many different little fights and little like the Boston massacre was notable because the papers really seized on it and there was a popular woodcutting that ended up 
proliferating in the same way. I guess you could say the the woodcutting sort of went viral, even though it didn't yeah. strictly depict the truth. Viral woodcuts, the free Twitter <laughs> age. It's a more fun one. A lot of people re woodcutted it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Because woodcut became a meme. They're like, what's a good meme caption for a woodcut of the Boston Massacre? Mondays. I don't know. Right. But, but the, the thing that captured popular imagination was an 11 year old boy named Christopher Sider who was shot in a protest in 1770. And that really. That really kicked things into high gear. And after that, there was, until the end of the revolution, Boston was just like a, a horrible place to be British and an absolutely horrible mm. place to be a British loyalist. So, But I thought it was looked back on with fondness at the heroism of you independent Americans starting to throw off us respectable Englishmen. <laughs> oh, yeah. And our crazy king. <laughs> our crazy king. But the loyalist elements of the North, they had a really good case until the British reacted. And then most of the loyalists were like, actually, yeah, this is probably not okay. But like, Actually, these guys are dickheads. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, something interesting about the morality movement in Boston, though, later on, was so it was all um, enforced by a society called the Watch and Ward Society. And this was a society that clamped down on lascivious literature and stuff like that. One of the driving forces behind it was a guy called Godfrey Cabot. And he uh, led this thing against books he thought were immoral. He thought the Three Musketeers was immoral. He thought Tolstoy was a moral pervert. Yeah. He told his wife not to read George Eliot when he wasn't there. Absolutely not. It was dangerous. <laughs> wow. I know you stopped your wife from reading that as well, James. <laughs> But this is the amazing thing about him. Someone wrote a biography recently and uncovered multiple erotic literature and letters that he used to send to his wife all the time. So he'd write to his wife in German, <laughs> which she didn't understand very well. And he sort of wrote about how she, he'd had this amazing dream about how she'd urinated in his mouth and oh, he'd greedily uh, right. swallowed I, it. Right. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. P.S. Do not read any George Eliot. <laughs> <laughs> there is a divorce in the third chapter. <laughs> He sent another letter saying he'd had a wow. fantasy about her being a starving giantess who devoured him hungrily. And then he wrote, writes all this in German. Which... And then he switches to English and he says, better destroy this letter, darling. Um, and you Maybe know... he just didn't know the word for urine. Maybe in German it's very similar to chocolate cake. <laughs> right, it's probably that. That's so... Isn't that weird? It's no, it's, it's, weird it's almost too perfect, right? The censor <laughs> is like, I'm confiscating this erotic literature. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You can collect the it. The pages will be stuck together in a few days. But... <laughs> you know, that's still around the Watch and Ward Society. Is it? It's been, it's, it changed its focus in the 40s to, um, to focus on more, more socially acceptable vices to hate like gambling and other stuff and then they became a criminal justice reform thing and they're around in like a boring bureaucratic office near Boston Common now like they're still weighing in each other's mouths behind yeah. closed doors <laughs> which of us can honestly say we haven't written to a lover wishing they were a starving giant who would throw us into their mouths yeah. uh, I've got some more things that are illegal in Boston mm -hmm. uh, actually most of these are illegal all over Massachusetts oh my god this is from an article on CBS which is strange but true obscure Massachusetts laws Great stuff. which normally if we would read that they would all be false but I've checked most of them and they do seem to be true so uh, it's illegal to sell rabbits ducks or chickens that have been dyed a different color than their natural color Really? That's like the guy, that's like a fish seller in Thailand earlier this year who put googly eyes on his fish to make <laughs> yeah. it look fresher. That's <laughs> so good. And it's illegal to sing only a portion of the Star Spangled Banner in public. So once you start, you have to get all the way to the end. Oh, I, I read that. And it says, it says you can't, it says if you play it as part of a medley of any kind, yeah. you're breaking the law. It's, Even chapter, it's chapter 264, section 9 of the Massachusetts Code. So it's a definite thing. 
So you have to sing the whole thing. If even if you start, even if you sing the first word, and then you think oh. better of it, you have to keep going. You well, people are going to want to know. You can't leave the question. I would say, can you see? And people are like, see what? Like, <laughs> Why the dawn's really like, What are we seeing? <laughs> Some reasons like you need to give a full answer. <laughs> Full of cliffhangers. Does it, wait, hang on. Is there a last word to the Star Spangled Banner? Yeah. Which is just, the, yes, the we can <laughs> see that. <laughs> okay, on to fact number two, and that is James's facts. Okay, my fact this week is that Henry VIII once enjoyed a pudding so much that he awarded the woman who made it one of the monasteries that he just seized from the Catholic Church. <laughs> This That's is some that, good it's, pudding. It's amazing. What kind of pudding? It was not recounted as oh, to what kind of pudding it was. It's the holy grail of puddings. When the you missing pudding. pudding. When you say pudding, is it like a American put like a like a like a chocolate mousse? Well, pudding. Not like a mousse because that, like that's a pudding, but it's not a pudding. You know, in the old days, a pudding was a lump oh, of suet yeah. or you know, studded with raisins, or it was a sort of discreet thing. So, was this when you say pudding? Are we talking dessert? I mean, it is a kind of dessert, but more specific than that. At okay, this time. so I'm saying, so it is a moose or it's not a moose? It's not a moose. Okay, fine. Not a moose. Alaska's most popular game. so yeah basically this is what happened a lot of people will know this that um henry the eighth dissolved the monasteries uh, and which meant that he took all of the property away from the monks and from the nuns and what does he do with it well he puts it into the he puts it into the coffers but also he gives a lot of it to his friends uh, at one stage, he lost some of it in a game of cards. Uh, apparently, he lost the Jesus bells of old St. Paul's Church on a single throw of dice. Oh, my gosh. Um, but, yeah, you've suddenly you've got a load of monasteries. What are you going to do with them? You're going to gamble Spen- with them. Spend them on puddings. <laughs> I, I like to imagine that he had run out of change and he just tried the pudding and it was so good. He said, oh, I haven't got anything to pay with. Uh, I suppose you could have this. <laughs> <laughs> sort of more inconvenient than just cash i don't think i'd accept monastery <laughs> would you not if i were working in a shop no no i just asked for the cash <laughs> you're, so, you're short-sighted that's what you are <laughs> sorry henry do you have contactless maybe <laughs> um so i found out a fact that links uh these two things that you've mentioned in the fact james pudding and henry the eighth so today the great british bake-off tent is in a place called welford park in berkshire and it, bef- it housed a monastery before Henry VIII dissolved them. So today, puddings are made on the site of one of the dissolved monasteries. That is amazing. That's, That's really, really so good. good. That's incredible. That's really good. How did you find that out? I don't know. <laughs> you Googled, you Googled Baked Goods Monastery and Google was like, you're in luck today, baby. <laughs> Very cool. Um, but yeah, sweet sweet food, which I assume this was, was a massive deal. It suddenly mm. took off, didn't it? At least for the nobles in Henry VIII's time. And they had such impressive things. So it was called a void, I think, the sweet course. So you'd have a, a certain number of courses in your meal in the 16th century. And the number of courses you had depended on your social status. And then the last course was a void. And it was because you had it standing up while the table was cleared. So the servants oh. came along and they cleared everything off the table and the void were your sweet things that you just stood up and ate. You're kidding. Or you went elsewhere to eat them or That's yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I would want to, that that sets me on edge a bit. I like to relax with a pudding and sit down. Well, they I want you ha- on edge. Henry yeah. wants you on edge. What if you just get like an ice cream when you're out in the park? Do you have to sit down to eat that? Preferably at a table with uh, crockery. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, it rendered the table void. Wow. That's that's unbelievable. What we I can't believe we don't know what pudding it is. It seems like the most important <laughs> no, detail. Alex, I'm so sorry. <laughs> this comes I, I didn't find this in many places. The main place I found it online is from Memoirs of the Court of Henry VIII, Volume Two by Catherine Thompson, okay. which is a Google book which um, you can only get a few of the pages. <laughs> so I can only see a few of these pages. And I don't know. I don't think we know what it was. I think it was just recounted at the time. And... She probably kept the recipe secret, though, because she doesn't want everyone getting a free monastery. Well, yeah. <laughs> here's the thing. Henry VIII's favorite dessert was called Maids of Honor Tarts. Uh, and they're little... No, they're not. What? Maids of Honor aren't tarts. Oh, it's Jeez. ironic, isn't it? It's an ironic dessert. Yeah. Mason's Mason's on on a, tart. I yeah. hear that he would eat oh. one and then he'd behead the next one. <laughs> <laughs> well, he just found these in a, in a place one time. They were served to him and he loved them so much that he confiscated the recipe and locked it in an iron box and announced they were for royal consumption <gasps> only. Wow. It does sound not very true. I have it? seen it debunked. Yeah, go on. Well, no, just, I, that's that's all it was. It was just someone said this probably isn't. So true. I've seen other people saying that um, this lady was killed so that she couldn't <laughs> get that, and I've seen that debunked. Uh, this might not be true as well. Yeah. I mean, it does. It has the ring of fakeness to it, doesn't it? And there's another story yeah. that um, someone from the royal household then snuck the recipe out, and that's how oh. we know it now, kind of thing. That's cool. Um, but they're a bit like those, you know, those um, custard tarts you get in um, Portugal. Yeah, I can't remember yeah. what they're called, but. The, like those. Oh, just like that? And he thought that was worth locking under lock and key? <laughs> I don't like those, but a lot of people do really like them, don't they? I guess. Uh, yeah. One pudding that they enjoyed in Henry VIII's time was eel wrapped in marzipan. Mm. That sounds really nice, really doesn't it? What's the grossest <laughs> dish from history that you guys can, have come across? The I'm... one that comes to my head straight away is son of a bitch pie, which is made by all of the pieces of a cow and one onion. No! <laughs> and it was like a cowboy recipe that they used to make in America. Son of a bitch pie? Yeah. It sounds like a cowboy recipe. <laughs> yeah. um, I would love for you guys to have a day where you do a live QI podcast and cook Many of the many of the dishes that you it would be such a spectrum of deliciousness in terms of <laughs> grotesque all the way to great. Right? I don't know if a podcast of vomiting for three hours is what people want to hear. <laughs> well, you do the podcast first, and then you have it after, and then you yeah. have a vomitorium, and you do facts about that. Okay, but <laughs> what's what's the place? I think we did this when I was on the podcast long, long time ago about a finger shot, a pickled finger. Oh, um, into... sour toe cocktail. Yes, there's a big toe in some bar. Yes, and you have to in Canada. Yeah, yeah, and you have to drink the shot or the dr cocktail or whatever, and then give the toe back. But sometimes people steal it or, or swallow, swallow it. it. Yeah. But also, it. you're mm. supposed to kiss the toe, so it needs to touch your lips while you're drinking the whiskey. That's pretty disgusting. I mean, hey, if we can book it for the QI podcast live <laughs> gastronomy day, I, I didn't realize there were so many daily accounts of like Tudor court life, mm. Mm -hmm. and I found this thing called the Voices of Morbath. And this is a uh, a priest named Christopher Triche, who survived the religious changes of Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary I, and Elizabeth I by um, sort of subtly shifting his views every time. <laughs> but he, but in his memoirs for the uh, Voices of Morbath, he expresses the most regret about the uh, about the stripping of the monasteries. Well, the but VIII. at the time, he was like, "This old thing. Oh, I've, been long, I've been saying we should get rid of this monastery for years." Yeah, but that's exactly how was his attitude. He's like. 
who loves Jesus? Like, like, he's not here, is he? Like, you're here, but he's and not. Then so Queen Mary ahead. comes along and he's like, I don't know what those bastards did with my monastery, but I want it back. But that's exactly what that, that he says that he was like, he was like his righteous fury when they, when they came yeah. for it. And like, what, but, what whiplash you must get must have gotten religiously. If I you think were... we've all done it though. I've definitely made horrible missteps in a conversation and then found out the person I'm talking to has very, very different views and sort of subtly walked it back. <laughs> but to do it f- four times is quite impressive. Four times in 54 years. Oh, oh that's I... fine. Yeah, 13 years per walk. That's fine. I can do it in five minutes. <laughs> I once took both sides of an opposing argument over the course of an evening and lost the argument both times. <laughs> oh. Alex, you've got to get some more mates. Yeah, no. <laughs> you alone in a pub just jumping <laughs> from one chair to the yeah, next. Exactly. Do you know that thing that um, chess players often do where they play multiple games of chess, but what they do is they play the moves that one person's playing against them against the other person, oh, so yeah. they always win at least half of the games. Darren Brown did that in yeah. 54. Not to spoil Darren Brown's, uh, one of Darren Brown's specials, but he did that and beat all these chess, chess yeah. players. I was thinking you could do that in your arguments. You could just run to the other bit of the pub and then just use the arguments that be Well, that's what I you. tried. I tried doing that because uh, someone made a really good argument. I was like, you know what? You've convinced me. And then I had the argument later on in the evening with the, my new convinced opinion and I got creamed. <laughs> yeah. I've got a chess fact, actually, about oh. this fact, which is that Wolsey, you know, Cardinal Wolsey, who was um, Henry VIII's uh, right-hand man at the start, before he killed him, um, served. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoilers. Uh, once served an entire chess set made of marzipan as a dessert, which is wow. quite impressive. Wow. Served it to the French ambassadors when that, they visited. That's a lot of eels. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to have a, a cheese chess board game where all the pieces are made of different kinds of cheese, and when you take an opponent's piece, you get to eat it. Because it's good. only one word away from chessboard and cheeseboard. Exactly. Yeah. That's good. So I think this is a big commercial opportunity that I'm throwing away now by saying it on a podcast. What would be your king cheese? You know, the <sighs> ultimate that you're going for. It's got to be a baby bell. It's got to be <laughs> a baby bell. No, that's crazy. <laughs> cheese drink. That's the best cheese, isn't it? <laughs> that's crazy. A smoked gouda. Nice. Um, I think it's got to be a hard cheese, doesn't it? Like... For the king. It's quite hard to have a player made of brie, I would say. <laughs> Depending on the temperature of the room you're playing in, you might need to play really fast. Brie's so hard to carve. <laughs> the reason you don't see brie sculptures. But they just had an extraordinary number of courses at the Tudor dining table. So if there were these laws about how many you could have, and it depended on your status, as I was saying. So if you were a cardinal, you could have seven to nine courses, wow. or seven to nine it's dishes. It's that, isn't it? It's enough. Uh, if you were, let's say, a member of the gentry class, you're only allowed three dishes. And so you have to know what equals a dish. And it would be a specific number of a certain thing. So if you're having a swan, you only got one swan, and that's a full dish. If you're having chicken, you get six chickens. If you're eating lark, you get 12 larks. For one person? Uh, well, it would be a, it's a family bucket, that. I think it? it's, it's for the table, yeah. Because right, they, okay. they have a... They had systems of trenchers, you know, they'd have a big sort of central plate with all the food served in that and you'd take yeah. from that. Are you allowed to have half a swan and maybe just six larks? <laughs> I don't I didn't actually read into the law that much, but I'm sure you could negotiate yeah. with the authorities if they checked. So Mark Wahlberg published his routine this week. Did any did either of you guys see that? No. Mark Wahlberg put his routine up online. This is I don't want to bore you with the details, but how about I just entertain you with the details? <laughs> Mark wakes up at two thirty AM. Then he prays for half an hour, and, and he better pray, because from 3.40 to 5.15, he's working out. Um, it's not his last workout of the day. Then he showers. It is his last shower of the day. <laughs> the shower's an hour and a half long. 
Then he has his first of three snacks. Okay. The snack only takes half an hour. And you might be like, only? Yeah, because snack number two is from 8 to 9.30. So that's an hour and a half for a snack. And he would save a whole hour and a half if he just ate it in the shower. (laughs) (laughs) So breakfast, lunch, and dinner are all on the schedule, but they're not part of snack. Mark Wahlberg spends two and a half hours of his day just eating snacks. Wow. <laughs> By the way, my favorite detail, he does half an hour of golf during the day. And half I just an like, hour of golf? I know. I just like to imagine yeah. him doing 18 holes in half an hour. <laughs> it's like a golf cart 60 miles an hour down a fairway. Just like, can I play through? I have one minute and 44 seconds to play this hole of golf. Here's what Mark Wahlberg eats. I start out with steel oats, blueberries, and peanut butter for breakfast. Then I have a protein shake three turkey burgers, five pieces of sweet potato, and then it's 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> At 8 o'clock, I have 10 turkey meatballs. At 10.30 a.m., I have a grilled chicken salad with two hard-boiled eggs, olives, avocado, cucumber, tomato, and lettuce. Then at 1 o'clock, I have a New York steak with green peppers. At 3.30, I have a grilled chicken with bok choy. At 5.30, 6 o'clock, I have a beautiful piece of halibut or cottage sea bass with some vegetables, maybe some sautéed potatoes and bok choy. And then I have a lot of aqua hydrate during the day, and then he goes, that's it. <laughs> it sounds like wow. he's a Tudor nobleman. Yeah, it really yeah. does. Like the amount of protein he has. And by the way, nowhere during his schedule that he's published are there any bathroom breaks. So that digestive system. He probably does that in the shower. Yeah, it's an hour and a half shower. That's why he's taking it. Or he leans out the side of the golf cart going 60 miles an hour with a very stressed out caddy. He was like, what are you doing? By the way, nowhere in Mark Wahlberg's schedule was there any time allocated for work and acting, which I found very interesting. I think that makes sense. Uh, So it's time for fact number three. That is Andy's. My fact is that dolphins in the wild have been teaching each other how to moonwalk. (laughs) Pretty cool. Um, To Michael Jackson's songs or like why are they doing that? Uh, not to Michael Jackson. Is just it in the fun. wild or is it at the? It's oh, in the wild. Oh wow! So the well, so there was a pod of dolphins in Australia, and they are wild. But there was one who joined them, whose name was Billy. Don't know whether Billy Jean, maybe. Oh, <laughs> um, but he's just a fish who thinks that I am the one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, if it, if he's a wild dolphin, why has he got a name? Okay, so this is the thing, Billy. I think Billy was a she, uh, like Billy Piper, like right. Billy Jean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Billy was rescued from a polluted harbour and kept in a dolphinarium for several several weeks. And while there, she observed other dolphins doing this moonwalking trick, which is where you kind of stand on your tail and you swish back and forth really hard. So you move backwards through the water like a moonwalk. Um, she wasn't taught to do it. She just observed and started doing it herself. And then when she was released in the wild, she was spotted seven years later in her pod and loads of them were moonwalking and loads of them were really good at it. And others wow. in the pod, 11 of them were spotted doing That's this amazing. trick. And what I really love about it, because this was actually about 10 years ago, this happened. Yeah. But what, why it's in the news at the moment is because the new generation has just stopped doing it. Yeah. So it's kind of something that their parents do. These like, kids. <laughs> these kids. All these dolphins are now flossing. No, they're just like, <laughs> but they don't these, do it anymore. The dolphins no. would be embarrassed. You're like, oh, my dad's always moonwalking. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, it's so funny when you sent it through at first, I, I was trying to conceive of how they'd, I'm like, where do they get the shoes? <laughs> <laughs> there was a news about a dolphin this year, a Randy dolphin, wasn't there, that I think came just slightly too late to get into our book of the year. Yeah. Oh, What's that book of the year you're talking about? It's just a tiny little project we've been working on, uh, the book of the year 2018. But yeah, there was news this year about a randy dolphin who shut down an entire beach. (laughs) This was in Brittany in August, so Brittany in France, and it was at a beach in the Bay of Brest, 
fittingly. And there's this dolphin called Zafar, um, Jafar with a Z, if you're wondering. And people used to would go to the beach and swim with him, and they could hold onto his fin, and he'd sort of like bound yeah. around. He's very friendly. But he wanted something in he return. He wanted something, and he started trying to have sex with people all the time. There was one woman who he picked up and lifted out of the water and wouldn't let her back down. Um, he would rub up sexually against kayaks and other small boats. Well, maybe he wanted to do some canoodling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they shut down the entire beach they shut down the beach you're not allowed within 50 metres of him wow, and you're not allowed to go in the water with people him. have really learned from Jaws haven't they in that <laughs> they didn't shut down the beach for ages and there was a shark eating people <laughs> well yeah it was tourist season on Amity Island it was it's part of the industry what's wrong with you Andy people always go after this mayor who's just trying to keep his community afloat it's the economics of the thing <laughs> quite impressively monkeys and macaques can teach their offspring to floss the so on, on animal teaching it's not the dance i don't think although i didn't check it wasn't the first thing that sprung to mind well they're flossing with human hair does the dance involve human hair no. i think it might just be your average tooth flossing but yeah i didn't even know they really flossed but um this was first spotted in 2009 in thailand and uh female monkeys were nicking hair off human heads or of human clothes wow. and then flossing their teeth with it and they found they spent double the amount of time flossing if they were doing it in front of their children in front of yous to wow. show them how to That's do amazing. it if my dentist said do you floss and i say no and he said well monkeys do dickhead <laughs> I think I might do it. I think I might do it more. I think you should change your dentist. (laughs) This is a a cool thing. Um, Killer whales, they teach their young. um, You know how that move where they surge onto a beach and they they grab a seal? Mm. So killer whale mothers will practice with their calves, but they first practice by surging onto a really steep beach so the calf can get back really easily, and also one where there are no seals. Ah. So it's it's like a driving lesson, basically. That's so cool. Yeah, and they do that, and then then they'll practice maybe, you know, a slightly shallower beach, and, you know, it gets gradually harder. But it's sort of the opposite of when humans are learning to drive, because you wouldn't do the very steep hill start until (laughs) quite late on (laughs) in your lessons. Um, just on dolphins, they have a language. Um, so they talk it's to each ger- other. German. <laughs> Mostly. It's click noises, isn't mm. it? And, um, and noises that we can't really hear. But the way that we know that it's a language and not random noise is they did studies on something called Zipf's Law. That's Z-I-P-F. And what it is, is the most common words in any language occur about... 10 times more than the second most common, which occur 10 times more than the third most common. It's not 10 times, but it's yeah. a logarithmic scale. And they checked all of these noises that dolphins were making, and they found that in dolphin languages, they have exactly the same laws as all human languages. So the most common clicks that they make are a certain percentage more than the second cool. most common and the third most common. And by doing all of this study and working that out, they reckon that they're going to use it to work out if aliens are trying to contact us because if we get any kind of signals from space we won't know it's a language or it just could be random but if we can work it out like dolphins that it has this kind of zips law that's very cool so does that mean that you can spot the really pretentious dolphins who are just using the extremely rare (laughs) (laughs) this word only came up once in 20 years and it was the dolphin in glasses over there (laughs) Uh, another thing about dolphins my favorite dolphin is kelly the dolphin uh and what they did was they taught these dolphins that if any rubbish got into their pool, then they could collect it and give it to their keeper and they would get a treat. 
Okay, so whenever any tourist dropped in a piece of paper, they pick it up, give it to the uh, keeper, and they get a treat. So, so what Kelly did was whenever someone drops in some paper, she would hide it at the bottom of the pool under a stone, and then she would rip off a little bit and give it to her <laughs> keeper and get a treat. And then once she's got the treat, she'd go down and rip another little piece off and get another treat and get loads of treats for one bit. Of oh, my God. That's <laughs> smart, that, isn't it? It's That's good. naughty is what that is. It's, Don't it's, reward it's, that kind of It's behavior. illegal in Boston unless it's uh, Sunday or the 4th of July <laughs> is what that is. I'm desperate to know the limits of like an animal, like like an animal's, uh, like there were always fights about what to do with Coco the gorilla. Yeah. So Coco the gorilla was a gorilla who could communicate with people with sign language. Right? Yeah. Um, Someone wanted Coco to write a novel and they were like, <laughs> no, no. What, who was like, no, the agent, the publisher? <laughs> yeah, Coco died this year, didn't she? Yeah, Coco died in, uh, Coco died shortly before the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I have a joke about Coco on my show, and I lived in fear every day because I would go, Coco's a gorilla. And, I, and every day I lived in fear of someone going, uh, not anymore. <laughs> She's an ex gorilla. Yeah, luckily like, I didn't go to Edinburgh this year to watch her <laughs> show, otherwise I'd have been straight there on the front row. No, no, you definitely would have been. It's, <laughs> the joke is about Coco meeting Robin Williams. And uh, Bobcat Goldthwait, who's really good friends with Robin Williams, a comedian, saw me do the joke and said to me afterwards, you know, Coco tried to have sex with Robin Williams. And really? uh, yes, and Coco and Robin met twice, and the second time Coco made a sign, and apparently, and Robin was, said to the handlers, "Like, what did Coco just say?" And they're like, "Ah, oh, Robin, let's uh, let's get you like slowly moving towards the." Uh, <laughs> the, the like, wow. So like, can we get you? Can we get you over here? So that's a bit of a that's a bit of hot goss that you probably yeah. can include because Bob, I've seen Bobcat say it on stage. So that's really yeah. good. Okay, moving on to our final fact, and that is from Alex. All right. In medieval Germany, the funniest joke anyone had ever heard involved replacing a flower with a poo. <laughs> it still it still works. It's still yeah, funny. Still Haven't funny. even heard the full version. All right. So, so how the, would it go? So there's a poet named Neidhart who's walking along, and he finds the first violet of spring, and he puts his cap over the flower to mark the spot. And when he's gone, this, this guy happens by, a bit of a prankster, and he lifts up the cap, and he picks the flower, and we'll say he squats down to leave his own souvenir. And uh, Neidhart comes back with like an entire court, <laughs> including the king and queen, does this big celebratory dance around the cap, and then with great ceremony and aplomb, removes it, to reveal a fresh steaming pile of human shit. And it was so funny in medieval Germany that the book by Ken Jennings called Planet Funny, which, which talks about it, says, and variations on the story were recycled in song, dance, prose, and drama, and art. And then in italics, he writes, for decades. For a time, it was fashionable for people to replace the portraits of the saints in their homes with paintings of the violet trick, as, <laughs> which made the church really unhappy. And yeah, it was a huge, it was a huge, huge joke fad. And um, it just totally resonated because maybe because people were so repressed. Resonated. <laughs> We've all been there, haven't we? <laughs> it's classic observational comedy. <laughs> Michael McIntyre will be proud of that material. So people's homes used to have portraits of feces just all over the walls for a time. Not feces. It would be Neidhart pulling his cap up and then there'd be the feces in it and like, you know, court people with their hands over their faces mm -hmm. and stuff like that, I assume. Yeah, that's right. It was turned of into a play. 
Yeah. Well, this it? turned into a full-on play. Wow. Yeah, uh, this was. Uh, I think it's the earliest non-religious drama of the Middle Ages that we have surviving today. This mm. play. No. But but it gets a bit more serious in the play because um, it's a contest to find the first violet of spring in the play, and um, there's a fanfare of trumpets as the cap is lifted up. Um, but when it's revealed, the villagers—they're all teasing Nightheart, uh, who is a knight in the story. They take the violet and the turd, and they hoist it on a pole, and they dance around it. And Nightheart doesn't see the funny side, and he cuts off the left legs of thirty-two of the villagers. <laughs> so they have to lean on the pole. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's not taking a joke very well. Imagine if um, uh, at, at the Edinburgh Festival uh, you had that response when you told a bad joke. I think there would be a higher bar to people entering, wouldn't there? <laughs> Um, but they were quite into this. So in the 15th century, I also read about a poem by a guy called Heinz de Kellner, um, who baked beans were named after. Who, no, they weren't. But he, he wrote a poem about a peasant who outwitted a princess in this verbal duel. And so they were having this verbal duel where they're bantering back and forth, which sounds quite funny anyway, and they're trying to outwit each other. And then she says that his material is utter shit. And he lifts up his hat to reveal an actual poo underneath it on his head, which apparently proved she was correct and meant that she had to marry him. Or he had to marry her. So that's what a the, variation what? on... That's, that's a variation, a variation of yeah. trick. What a relief for for him that she said, your material is utter shit. <laughs> she never says it. But he probably, his whole life, he had this poo on his head. And he was just waiting for that one moment. Right? <laughs> Very old poo by that point. <laughs> and she had to marry him. She had to marry him, yeah. I think this never say to any comedian, especially one wearing a hat, <laughs> that their material shit, because you might end up having to marry them. I yeah. think that's oh my God, that's... Yeah, how'd you do me? You're not gonna <laughs> like this. <laughs> I was just looking up sort of other German comedy uh, from the Middle Ages. So there was um, a play called Dulcitius, which is an adaptation of a Roman play, and it's it involves a governor who's got three virgins locked in a pantry, and he wants to kind of caress them. Uh, but he goes in the pantry and it's all dark in there and he he keeps on molesting various kitchen utensils <laughs> thinking that they're the young women thinking implausibly that they're the young women who yeah well, um, all of these do sound kind of funny don't they? <laughs> they're kind of not brilliantly I think, funny I think a lot of the stuff that um, fad comedy or comedy fads they're all mechanisms to relieve tension like this is probably so funny because of like the the, the dour culture around you know, being alive in yeah. in 14th century Germany didn't encourage this kind of irreverence. And like, um, I got a really funny joke fed from from this joke absolutely swept through <laughs> 1968 Egypt, which was a man narrowly misses a bus, takes off down the street in pursuit. He's so fast that he catches up with the bus at the end of the block and hops aboard. The conductor, seeing this feat, only charges him half fare. So uh, here's here's what you needed to know. Apparently, in 1967, <laughs> I didn't get the joke. Is this I love part jo- of your Edinburgh set. Yes, I, uh, love, I love a joke. Gone, it's not gone well this year. I love uh, a joke with an afterword. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I guess these things these things were all contextual. They all killed yeah. contextually. Mm-hmm. So Egyptian military personnel got 50 percent off on buses on public transport, mm-hmm. and they had just been beaten in the 67 war in a way that was so bad that even in their own country they sort of had like a reputation for retreating that was like sort of not unlike the way that we think about the French in in, like today is in in terms of comedy so the bus driver sees this guy running and he thinks this guy is running so fast 
that the only way he could be running this fast is if he's a soldier in retreat. So therefore, he gets 50% off on the bus. But some jokes are, some jokes do seem to be quite timeless. So that one, very specific to 1968, I guess, in, in Egypt. But how about this one from the 5th century BC? Uh, this is from uh, ancient Roman joke book. So it was told, it was recounted a bit later, but it's based in the 5th century BC. And a Macedonian king was asked by his barber, how should I cut your hair? So the Macedonian king was Archelaus. Uh, and the barber asked him, how should I cut your hair? And Archelaus replied in silence. That's that's attributed to Churchill, I've seen that. And to Enoch Powell. Oh. They're nicking it, all these classicists, they're nicking it from the Macedonian king. Wow. <laughs> he probably nicks it from someone else as well. <laughs> so, right. Researching this, the thing that I found the most interesting was like things, I guess com- comedy fads throughout history that had their moment and then just mm-hmm. totally disappeared. Like, sorry to read again, but like, uh, I do want to give credit to Ken Jennings, who, by the way, he's written this book called Planet Funny, and it is really funny and a really good history of comedy. And Ken, trivia-wise, could give any run on the planet a run for their money because he won 74 episodes of Jeopardy in a row, which is $2.1 <laughs> million. But so Abraham Lincoln gathered his cabinet to the White House early on September 2nd, September 22nd, 1862, and his Secretary of War was really annoyed because he had a lot on his plate at the time because it was the Civil War, and the president (laughs) was reading a very popular series of books uh, from a a really popular uh, book by Artemis Ward, who was a country fried humorist that sort of explored American comedy to London in the 1860s. And it was sort of like the president doing Anchorman quotes. Like it was very, very popular and sort of hack. And he was reading a sketch um, called The High-Handed Outrage at Utica about a traveling salesman trying to impress upstate New Yorkers with wax figurines of the Twelve Apostles. And um, a local ruffian ruins his trip by, by pounding his Judas statue all to hell in a fit of religious fervor. And he was laughing really loudly by the time he got to the end and Stanton says, without a single member of the cabinet joining in. (laughs) Undeterred, the president proceeded to read a second chapter (laughs) and Stanton said he was about to walk out when the president declared an end to the open mic night and got to the business at hand. Pulling a paper from his trademark hat, he read to them a document he had just finished revising and had decided to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing every slave in the Confederacy. Whoa. But so he loved, so Lincoln loved, loved frontier humor because everyone loved frontier humor, but it wasn't something that people bragged about. When Lincoln was campaigning against opponents, they always tried to portray him as someone who enjoyed jokes. So the image of like Lincoln as a frontiersman, which became its own genre of comedy, was actually something he spent so much of his life trying to get away from. Like a frontier comedy thing was something that Lincoln really hated his entire life because it was a real political stab at him. But like he had the misfortune, he said, of being part of this like cultural phase of like corny comedy literally coming from the word corny came from like this idea of people who liked these jokes as corn fed really hicks. Is that right? Didn't know yeah that. and cool. so and so uh yeah comedy fads throughout history are like very very yeah fascinating. really interesting <laughs> uh just back on to night what's he called nightheart nightheart yeah yeah so um he was basically the biggest poet of his age before that there was a lot of poetry and a lot of stories about uh knights and, and stuff like that but he was the first one who talked about villagers 
And that's why he had all this kind of um, scatological humor. Is the scatological element, the smell, is that a big part of the comedy? It was a big part of their lives. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. But farts have always been funny as well. Yeah. You look back through over the centuries, people are always making fart jokes. There was a really cool um, series of Japanese scrolls that were discovered about 20 years ago, I think. And they're from the 17th to 19th century, from the Edo period. And they are just literally picture after picture of people having fart battles. And no one knows why, but <laughs> people drop their trousers and they're blasting these massive farts at each other. And it shows the farts knocking people over and uprooting trees. It shows someone wow. sitting cross-legged on the top of two massive farts being cast <laughs> up at him. It's bizarre. We don't know why. Well, we think that it's probably metaphorical as opposed to they had incredible flashlights. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows. Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back again next week and you can catch us on Twitter, some Twitter handles. Andy, you're on... At Andrew Hunter M. James, you're on... At James Harkin. Alex? I'm at Alex Edelman. And you can also email podcast at qi.com or you can go to at no such thing, our group Twitter account, or you can go to no such which has all our previous episodes, details of our tours that are coming up, uh, how you can buy our book, which we've just written. Alex, do you have anything to sell? No, I just finished my run at the cell, but there should be a UK tour coming up and some dates in the United States. Awesome. Do you have a website? I do. My website's alexedelmancomedy.com, but I prefer you follow me on social media. Okay, so do that. We'll get a time machine, go back in time, watch his show at the Edinburgh Fringe. Probably should have had you on a few months ago, shouldn't we? Yeah! I could have shipped in some tickets, baby! (laughs) Sorry about that. I I want to plug one thing, which is the upcoming QI um, podcast slash meal uh, <laughs> we're not doing I will not it. let this go. I'm wrapping this you shit up. You cannot edit this out. Oh, Lord. Okay, thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.